Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What's the first thing you remember when you think of Nino Aquino? It's the bottle glasses and the hand on his chin. Or his assassination and the people power revolution that followed it. Maybe you even imagine that image of him in a cream-colored safari suit on the tarmac just moments after he was shot. There's no shortage of tributes and articles remembering his life, death, and legacy. But this is history rebooted, so we'll be doing something different. We'll talk about Dinoy's decision to come home in the first place and how his support system worked to make it happen. I'm actually surprised this hasn't been made into a movie because it would make a fantastic spy thriller. It's got forged passports, scheming government officials, a meh-just-sketchy telegram from Juan Ponce Enrile, and a public relations campaign ran halfway around the world. Welcome to WhatsApp, Araling Palipunan Rebooted. I'm Siege Tantenko, a TV reporter, podcaster, and history nerd. And I'm Sab Schnabel, a historian who has worked with Carlos Seldran, the National Museum of the Philippines, and the Guggenheim in Venice. Together, we'll talk about the spy movie it took to bring Ninoy home. Bagong lahat, a quick note about our sources. Dito sa WhatsApp, we believe in getting information from as many sources as possible. But in this episode, we'll be relying heavily on one source because of its unique position to the story. On October 16, 1983, the New York Times published an article titled, Aquino's Final Journey. It was written by ABC News correspondent Ken Kashiwahara, Ninoy's brother-in-law. He was sitting right next to Ninoy on the plane from Taiwan and heard the shots from inside the plane. Other articles even refer to him for the details of that fateful day. Much of today's episode comes from that detailed account of the journey. The New York Times has digitized and uploaded the entire article, and we 100% recommend that you read it. Ninoy was killed on August 21, 1983, smack dab in the middle of the Cold War. As we said in our episode about the Korean War, the Cold War is a sneaky war between democracy and communism, East and West. If the Iron Curtain referred to the USSR and its influence in Eastern Europe, the term the bamboo curtain was used to talk about communist states in East Asia. And that conflict was playing out here in the Philippines. At this point, the dictator Ferdinand Marcos had been in power for 18 years. It had been 10 years since the declaration of martial law. Those who opposed him, including students, were imprisoned, tortured, exiled, and killed. This was a dark time for freedom and human rights. Never forget. As the Secretary General of the Liberal Party, Ninoy was Marcos's only real competition. He was very popular and was elected to the Senate with the highest number of votes of any candidate. Because of this, he posed a real threat to the administration. After Marcos declared martial law, Ninoy was accused of arming communist rebels and plotting the murder of a village chief. He was imprisoned for many years in Fort Bonifacio, or as we know it today, BGC bro. While in captivity, he suffered a heart attack and was allowed to leave for the U.S. to get heart surgery. 
The Marcos regime was a totalitarian state where journalists were silenced and human rights violations were rampant. But what we don't really talk about is how much support the Marcoses received for their anti-communist stance. He used the communists not just as scapegoats, but as a way to curry favor from Ronald Reagan. Please read favor as sip sip. The U.S. thought Marcos was an acceptable evil. There are photos of Marcos smiling and shaking hands with Ronald Reagan, Imelda dancing with Lyndon B. Johnson. This is why so many books about U.S.-Filipino relations are called Waltzing with Dictators or Dances with Dictators. 1983 was so recent, many of you were already born. And so were Emily Blunt, Chris Hemsworth, and John Lloyd Cruz. The Oscars that year awarded the movie Gandhi as Best Picture. It's a story about a nonviolent independence movement. Number one on the Billboard charts was stalker favorite, Every Breath You Take, by the police. Hey, in 2019, we're still afraid of the police. So, what was travel like in 1980? In a word, analog. Unlike these days with facial recognition and chips and scanners, back then, everything had to be done and checked by hand. And crucial to this story, passports were handwritten. Okay, nowadays, my phone can hear me talking and give me ads for it. Back then, you could really pretend to be someone else if you had the right papers and were good enough with a pen. Maybe that's why spy fiction flourished so much during the Cold War. Sean Connery, often regarded as the best James Bond by fans, appeared in his final 007 film, Never Say Never Again, in 1983. Driven by the Cold War tension, spy thrillers were so prevalent in this decade that filmmakers even made parodies. Sort of like how Scary Movie was a reaction to the boom of cookie-cutter horror movies. The best one, if you're interested, is Top Secret with Val Kilmer. But some real events from this time are even stranger than fiction. Case in point, Nino Yakino's horrible homecoming. Is this good enough for trademark? Open tayo sa Act 1, The Decision to Return. Ninoy had been languishing in exile in Boston since his heart surgery in 1980. While he had already been a vocal critic of the Marcos dictatorship when he was in the Philippines, he made a promise to Imelda that he would no longer badmouth the regime. It was the condition on which they allowed him to leave. But now that he was no longer imprisoned and in desperate need of health care, Ninoy insisted that a pact with the devil is no pact at all. <gasps> Laglaga na! Dun, dun, dun. His exile only further made him into the face of the opposition to Marcos. He would go to different colleges to speak about the situation in the Philippines, giving lectures opposing the regime and its rampant human rights violations. In historian Alfred McCoy's book, Policing America's Empire, he states that, Under Marcos... Military murder was the apex of a pyramid of terror with 3,257 killed, an estimated 35,000 tortured, and some 70,000 arrested. So it's fair to assume that Ninoy knew if he were to return, there could be an assassination attempt. After all, the Marcos has made it clear it would be better for him in the U.S. So, bakit pa? Why didn't he just wait out his days safe in Boston, opposing from afar? The early 1980s saw a Marcos in decline. Kashiwahara noted that Manila was unstable. Quote, reports of Marcos's failing health were starting to leak out. 
and Ninoy was eager to take advantage of the moment, end quote. Manila was a powder keg. Officially, all communications Ninoy received were telling him to stay in the U.S. These letters were very carefully worded because everyone expected that the mail was being read. But Ninoy was desperate to go back. People tried to dissuade him. His family tried to convince him to stay in the States. According to Kashiwahara, the more people tried to dissuade him, the more he was convinced that if there was any time to strike, it was now. Ninoy admitted that he had a death wish. He mentioned it in interviews, but not the death wish that we think of. It wasn't a reckless disregard for his life. It was tied to his deep sense of purpose. He would rather a death that meant something than a life worth nothing. He would not stand around when he could be making a difference. My feeling is we all have to die sometime. Now, if it's my fate to die by an assassin's bullet, so be it. But I cannot be petrified by inaction or fear of assassination and therefore stay in a corner. And in the end, his family and friends decided to support his decision. This is important because there is no way he could have done it alone. While there's no denying that Ninoy was a great man, one of the things that we want to be careful of here at WhatsApp is what historians call the great man theory. Great man theory is a 19th century idea that says history can be largely explained by the impact of great men or heroes. The theory is primarily attributed to the Scottish philosopher Thomas Carlyle, who said, the history of the world is but the biography of great men. Historians and critics have been debating about the validity of this theory for years. For example, let's say, you know George Washington, right? He won American independence. But did he? Or did guerrilla battle tactics win the war? Did he lead a revolution? Or did unfair taxation motivate the Americans to fight with everything they had against the tyranny of the English? Great man history would posit that the general at the head of the army won the war. But we at WhatsApp subscribe to a more nuanced approach. Wars are won because of logistics. They're won because one side has better supplies or better technology. Sometimes it's weather. Sometimes wars are won because of allies. To follow the George Washington example, he never could have won without Lafayette. I'm taking this horse by the reins, making red coats red with blood stains. Lafayette. And I'm not going to for wrapping. I regret this decision immediately because I got to the second part. <laughs> George Washington would never have won against the British if the French didn't intervene. And they intervened because they hated the British, not because George Washington inspired them. You can still see the influence of the great man theory in how grade school history is taught here in the Philippines. Alam nyo naman, there's a heavy emphasis on memorizing heroes. Tandang Sora ang ina ng Katipunan. Apolinario Mabini ang dakilang lumpo. Ninoy Aquino, the Filipino, is worth dying for. Instead of looking at the larger forces that these people were a part of and the organizational structures that worked behind them. When Ninoy set his heart on returning, his network of political allies, family members, and other exiled Filipinos began planning. He couldn't fly straight through Manila, of course. He would have to bounce around, use fake passports, and I'm really hoping fake bigote. Yeah, I cannot confirm nor deny that there were fake bigotes. Act 2. Mission. It's possible. The first date was set, August 7th, 1983, and it was chosen very carefully. A Sunday... Workers and students would be off, and the welcome crowd would be enormous. He wanted to make a big splash. His brother-in-law describes it as a salvo. It was to be his first strike. 
Kashiwahara's account of this machine shines some light on the support system that brought Ninoy home and then built his legacy. His mother, sisters, and allies back in Manila kept him in the news. The diaspora of exiled Marcos opposition rang alarm bells, and some brave supporters even raised money for Ninoy. A legend cannot build itself. It needs to be cultivated. The story needs to be compelling. Ang tawag dyan, branding. Understand, at this point, they were not sure what was going to happen. They didn't know if Ninoy would be killed or imprisoned and then executed. They basically were banking on Marcos being too smart to publicly erase such a beloved figure. Adding to the gravity of this situation, President Reagan was also supposed to make an official state visit in November. So Marcos was under pressure. To risk getting rid of Ninoy might jeopardize that. A state visit from the U.S. president gave Marcos a lot of clout. And here's the part of the movie where Tom Cruise wraps up the plan and says, What's the worst that could happen? And then Imelda suddenly showed up in the U.S. on state business, yeah, right? To insist that Ninoy should renew his passport the right way. Trust the system. Yeah. He was predictably denied. They cited an assassination plot allegedly by the victims of Ninoy's crimes. Remember, he allegedly gave guns to communists and plotted to kill someone? Because somehow, in his years of imprisonment, isolation, sickness, and exile, he had time to order the deaths of political opponents. Ninoy's response was, Why is Marcos more concerned about me, the alleged victimizer, rather than the threat? Imelda reportedly offered him incentive to stay away from the Philippines, telling him that the Marcoses could not control the people who were after him, which sounds like when the mafia tells you that something unfortunate might happen. So he had no official travel documents, but he had got a false passport from a friend in the Middle East. The plan had changed. Instead of a happy homecoming, he would instead try and blend in, fly in on a Korean Airlines flight that arrived around the same time as a few other flights. The crowd would now be a cover. But then, Juan Ponce and Rila cabled him saying basically, dude, you'll be super dead if you show up. And he said it more legally than that. In fact, the legal language is what alerted Ninoy. Alam na, di ba? Na-trigger yung spidey sense niya. This was clearly a carefully worded warning. He decided to postpone, be even more careful. And then, the New York Times announced that Marcos was disappearing for an odd amount of time. Three weeks of seclusion ostensibly to write a book. It was clear that the strong man was no longer in good health, which made Ninoy change his mind again. He was going home after all. The spy thriller was back on. On August 12, Ninoy called Kashiwahara. Ninoy told him to get a clean phone. They knew that they were being tapped. The surveillance was so prevalent that people would check into hotels under aliases to receive calls from payphones in other countries. Alam niyo naman, it was dangerous to be a dissident in the Philippines under Marcos. He told Kashiwahara that he would be in Taiwan on August 19 and to meet him in Taipei. They would take China Airlines to Manila. There were no diplomatic ties between the Philippines and Taiwan because of international tensions. Ninoy thought that would be a good cover. His plan is so outrageous. I'm going to direct quote from Kashiwahara's article in the New York Times. On August 14, Ninoy flew to Singapore using the fake passport with his real name. 
In Singapore, he was met by the son of the Sultan of Johor and whisked across the border to Malaysia, where he met with high-ranking officials from Indonesia, Thailand, and Malaysia to explain why he was going home and what he hoped to achieve. End quote. How was that not a movie? The son of the Sultan of Johor whisked him across the border to Malaysia. Like crazy rich Asians or something. It's craziness. Former Lanao del Sur Congressman Rashid Lukman got Ninoy his fake passport. In it, he's listed as Marshal Bonifacio. We'll let you read behind the lines on that one. He switched passports in Taipei. It had forged departure stamps from Manila to minimize suspicion. Kashiwahara said that they even circled the airport a few times to minimize the time Ninoy would be recognized. So there they are, circling the airport, on the lookout for anyone who might be following them. They finally get down and go to check in. And the person at the desk raises a flag. Why does this passport only have a stamp from the Philippines when you came from Hong Kong? But Ninoy, cool as ever, was all, oh, it was a connection. And they got through. And they thought they were done. They thought they were home free. But they got stopped right after security. Ninoy and Kashiwahara were sure this was the end of it all. But then the Taiwanese official said, we have never heard of Aquino and we do not know he is in Taiwan. Wink, wink. Nudge, nudge. Apparently, Marcos had expelled the Taiwanese ambassador pretty rudely. So just goes to show, don't be rude to anyone or they'll let your enemy back into your country. Ninoy was finally heading back to Manila in a plane full of journalists. In Manila, the Ninoy PR machine was in full swing. The Aquino family had been busy circulating leaflets. Yellow ribbons were being tied to oak trees. Ninoy's reaction, boy, Direk is really doing it, huh? Direk is what he called Lupita, his sister. She had been sent ahead with an 18-point list of instructions. His mother and sister were instrumental in planning his homecoming. Because women get shit done. Again, we want to reiterate, we're not trying to diminish Ninoy's legacy here. We're instead trying to highlight that it took a team to make the hero. Just like it takes a team to make all heroes. This incredible story, this crazy espionage thriller, took teamwork to bring to life. The great man needed his wife and his family to be great. You can't do it alone. More after the break. Very ready with your hand camera because this action can become very fast. In a matter of uh, three, four minutes, it could be all over, you know. And (laughs) I may not be able to talk to you again after this. Ninoy's death took nine seconds. That's how long it's described by Ken Kashiwahara. Soldiers boarded the plane and forced Ninoy out. No one could go with him. It was chaos, and then it was over. The person who seemed to take the news the most calmly was his wife, Cory. And the rest, as they say, is history. Ninoy Aquino died a little after 1 p.m. on August 21, 1983. His funeral, held 10 days later, was attended by millions. People lined the streets to pay tribute. In the Sandigan Bayan ruling on the assassination, Justice Regina Hermosissima Jr. said, While he ought to have been met with flowers, laded with lays, and carried over the shoulders of his admirers and friends as a returning patriot, He was instead treacherously and brutally shot at the back of the head after being fetched by military men from inside the plane and led out surreptitiously through an aerobridge door and down into a bridge stairs. 
The foremost opposition leader, the most malignant thorn at the side of the then ailing strongman, President Ferdinand E. Marcos, fell dead, his face kissing at last the soil of his native land. In videos all over the internet, you can see footage of him on his trip back to Manila. He thought of his journey, quote, I think it's a victory if we just land. Everything else is a bonus, unquote. Little did he know that the bonus he talked about was a revolution that would bring down his political enemy. Shots were fired at the Manila International Airport and across the city, even in his sickly condition, Marcos was livid. He knew what it meant. He saw the writing on the wall. And it said, people power, mother fracker. Ninoy's thoughts on the political climate in the Philippines were, the grass is dry. All you need is a spark. He was that spark. going to take a little break and when we come back we'll go into why we learn about all of this in the first place. When we learn about heroes we learn about them and their contribution but they're like swans all graceful on top and furiously kicking under the surface. So much about studying history is about looking at the result as a foregone conclusion. A great man, TM, declared martial law, and a great man, TM, got assassinated and sparked a revolution. But to get there, to get to that ending, a million things had to go right and go wrong. Marcus had to fire the Taiwanese ambassador. The son of the Sultan of Johor had to be available to smuggle Ninoy across the border. An old colleague had to come through with a fake passport. And a China Airlines check-in clerk had to believe a lie. What we're trying to do with WhatsApp is to make us all look more critically at the stories that we tell and how they make our history. This entire podcast, lahat nitong pinag-uusapan natin, this incredible, complicated series of events is glossed over in the official record on the Nino Aquino website by his own foundation. It says, quote, With the help of Rashid Lukman, a friend and former congressman from Mindanao, Ninoy was able to obtain a legitimate passport under the name Marshal Bonifacio, Marshal for Martial Law, and Bonifacio for Fort Bonifacio, and immediately planned out his detour route home. End quote. That's it. That's all we get. As if the harrowing journey, the plane full of journalists, the plane tickets, the co-conspirators all just appeared out of nowhere. Never mind the meticulous planning and the PR machine in Manila that it took to make it all happen. Guys, ang galing ng branding nila. Seriously. They managed to make one color a message. Who knew that a color yellow could bring down a dictator? Lupita Aquino, Teresa Aquino Oreta, and Aurora Aquino knew that's who. And at the center of all of this is Corazon Cojuanco Aquino. Let's not forget Cori. The documentaries that praise Ninoy the Great Man trivialize Cory as his housewife, the woman who stood by his side through all of this. Let's set aside for a moment that housewife is a full-time job and political wife is an even more demanding occupation. Cory had to be strong for him. She had to take her children to prison. She had to care for him when he was sick and suffer through years of uncertainty. She stood up to Marcos just as bravely as Ninoy did. She planted herself like a tree and said, no, you move. When we read about history, we see a flow that highlights the great men who seem to be directing that flow. The Ninois, the presidents, the freedom fighters, etc. But each move that they made required careful planning and a network of people who cannot brag about their involvement. Bringing Ninoy home required people to make sacrifices, to keep quiet, 
and to face danger head-on. We should honor these individuals as much as we honor Ninoy. He would have wanted it that way. Any change at any time in history comes down to people making sacrifices and fighting to force the world to be a better place. All those people were breaking the law. All of them were going against the wishes of their authority. But they knew what was right and they fought for it. Ninoy, Cory, and all the rest fought to make our country better. How can we now do any less? Until next time, I'm Sab Schnabel. And I'm Siege Tantanka. Class dismissed. We've got more episodes coming your way. Subscribe to Puma Podcast or search for WhatsApp at Aling Palipunan Rebooted on Spotify, Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Join the discussion and check out our favorite history memes. Follow us on Twitter at History Rebooted and on Facebook.com slash History Rebooted and on Instagram at history.rebooted. I'm on social media at Siege the Day. And I'm Sab Schnabel on Twitter. That's S-C-H-N-A-B-E-L. It means beak in German. This episode of WhatsApp, Araling Panlipunan Rebooted, was produced by Pauline Reyes and edited by Nina Toralba of Puma Podcast. 